Hello, and welcome to With the First Link, the podcast that hopes to make our future as bright and as just as the one that we see in Star Trek The Next Generation. And we think that one way to do that is to recap and discuss the entire series, one episode at a time, doing our best to look at it all through an anti-oppression, anti-racist lens. I am Ruthie Cowper-Samoshi. And I'm Matthew Simone, and today we'll be talking about Lonely Among Us. This episode was written by DC Fontana and Michael Halpern, and directed by Cliff Bowl. It first aired on October 31st, 1987. It's Halloween. It's a Halloween episode. It is, it, you know what? This works as a Halloween episode. Maybe, yeah. It's got a creepy cloud. It has a creepy cloud. Spooky it has very thing. elaborate wardrobe. Snaky monsters. Yeah. Yeah. Halloween. For our check-in today, this episode has uh, Picard deciding to explore the galaxy as pure energy. So, Matthew, how far would you go in the name of exploration? Uh, this is a good jumping point, too, because we were chatting a little bit about this before we started the podcast. And, uh, and you were talking about how... Or we are debating what exploration actually means. And so right now in the world, there's a bunch of statues that are being torn down. And one Yay. of them that I was reading about was Christopher Columbus. And so we were debating, was Christopher Columbus an explorer? And one of the things I've been thinking about, like, in, in making the documentary that I've been working on, uh, was the sense that, like, exploration is, or at least I think should be, an act of empathy. It's like you reaching out to like understand the universe and the life that might be in the universe and I think yourself as well because as you travel, you come to know more about yourself. You know, when we went to the moon in the Apollo missions, the, I think the photo that was the most reproduced is not even of the moon. It's actually of Earth. It's that, the photo called Earthrise. I mean, looking back and seeing the planet from so far away, no one had ever seen Earth from that far away before. Uh, no human had ever gone that far before. So people that are explorers or labeled explorers, I think that's sort of revisionist history because I think they were actually conquerors. And that's different. I don't, that's not exploration. Um, and I've never really been interested in going into space or seeing us go to space, just like plant a flag somewhere or just to extract the resources or God forbid, oppress people that are there. But it was more to, as an act of humility and, and understanding. Would you, like, if you had the opportunity, would you go to space? Oh, yeah. You know I would. <laughs> like in a heartbeat. Yeah, I do know that. I I don't think I would. Actually, really? No, I, I, I can say with almost absolute certainty oh. I wouldn't go to space. I mean, why? Is it a I, safety I can, thing? What is it? I don't know. You know, I was thinking about this, like the idea of how far would I go to explore. I have lived in the same city for a very long time. And I currently live about two subway stops from like where I grew up and where my parents still live. Yep. I don't know if I'm at least in the sort of physical realm, if I'm just not much of an explorer. I don't know. I like to travel. I like to go to new places. But I also am very much like comforted by familiarity. I think mm. I like to explore topics i like to learn i like to have my assumptions challenged and and i like to question what i think i know well that's a, that's a good point too then does exploration just have to be physical exploration can it not also be like philosophical exploration and ideological exploration yeah i think in that way i think i i like to explore a lot i like to I like when I, I mean, it's uncomfortable to find out that you were wrong about something or that you maybe harbored 
harmful beliefs or perspectives, it can be a really great feeling to then get past that to be like, oh, I was wrong. This is uncomfortable, but now I know better and now I can do better with yeah. my new knowledge. Just like every conversation on the internet. Ex- that's exactly how it goes. People uh, yeah. are like, wow, you know what? I think I think I need to think about this a little more. Thank you yeah. so much for your perspective. That's exactly how the internet works. I've seen it happen sometimes. Sometimes. It's always nice when it happens. Yeah, it is. But you're. I think you're right. It's that exploration. It requires a willingness to be uncomfortable. Comfort is very coveted in our society. In fact, I think people feel that they're entitled to it. I would say that like some comforts we we should be not entitled to but have a right to, and that is things like shelter, food, you know, like our basic human needs to be taken care of. But when I it mean, comes that's to- like we could call that necessity, not yeah. comfort. It, yes. it it is effectively at this point a comfort, but it it's also a necessity to live. Yes. And, and it shouldn't be considered a luxury or a yes. comfort. Yes. Yes, very good. Yes, thank you. But when it comes to like our I don't know, like fear from being challenged or having to explore. Because I think, you know, even in a conversation with a person who has a different viewpoint, like that that in itself can be a form of exploration. I, I think that if we if we always privilege or exemplify our comfort in those situations, then we'll never really engage with certain things. I think we're seeing a lot of that happen right now with like pushback against uh, movements like Black Lives Matter is that some people are like, no, like the this kind of quest or push for civility. We don't want to have you know, we don't want to see this, we don't want to hear about it is because of like the privileging of comfort. We don't want to explore this issue. We don't want to have empathetic contact with the people who are trying to tell us about their own experiences because it differs from ours. Yeah. And that's, and it's the privileging of white comfort. Oh, totally. Yeah. Like it's, it's the privileging of white comfort over black safety. What would, what would you want to do in space? Okay. My favorite, my favorite astronaut when I was younger was Chris Hadfield. And one of the things I really appreciated about him is that when he went to space, he would try to share his perspectives and the things that he learned and thought about there back on Earth. He still does that now. One of the conversations I remember in particular is that he was discussing looking at the Earth's atmosphere and what it looked like from space and how other astronauts had described it as the peel of an orange. But he thought it looked more like the skin of an onion. Like it's so thin, this one barrier that protects our entire environment, the whole planet from the vacuum of space and and how it it reminded him to to want to take care of it. And so, you know, trying to share those perspectives. And so if I were to travel to space, I would want to – Learn what I could, like drink in what it was like being to, off of our planet and outside of gravity and just seeing the world out there and then wanting to share that with people to hopefully make the world a better place, to consider our mutual connections, the fact that we share this world and have to take care of it. I've tried to find other ways to do that in my day-to-day life, either by working at the planetarium and talking to people about space or even doing a podcast. This way, it's like my way of being an astronaut in lieu of actually being able to be an astronaut. The way you describe that, that definitely sounds compelling. But to bring it back to the idea of comfort, I feel like I would just be motion sick the entire time. <laughs> yeah, you, astronauts I, I do throw to, up in space. Yeah, I used to have, I used to have like a hard time flying in planes. Like I would, I would get sick throughout the plane ride. I would basically need to take gravel and be asleep the entire time. That was how I would not be sick. I would just sleep through a plane ride because if I was awake I actually when I was really young I got car sick really easily now I'm okay I'm, I'm a bit better but I think space flight would 
would not agree with me. So what is it about space then that you find alluring? Well, it's funny. I'm I'm not necessarily like a fan of space as a I mean, I I I like it. I don't have a problem with it. I think it's beautiful. <laughs> um so I don't want to I don't want to give the impression that I don't like space. I'm just not a fan. Um I love Star Trek. I love space as a setting yes. for stories. Yes, yeah. It's more the story than the setting. It's more the story that's important to me than the setting. So here's a question then. Why is it that stories that you find compelling find a good home in the setting of space? One thing that I like about uh, science fiction and fantasy is that it gives us a way to talk about contemporary issues while maintaining some distance. And I think that that can be a way of reaching people who are just not comfortable talking about things that are actually happening in the world. Mm -hmm. I also, though, a long time ago, I read a, I think it was a tweet. And if I knew who had tweeted it, I would say, but I don't. But it was saying that like dystopian stories are basically white people saying, what if the things that we did to people of color happened to us? And, oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. And so that really changed how I look at dystopian literature. And I try to, since reading that, I've tried to, rather than read dystopian literature by white people, just try to consume more literature, to read, read more literature by authors of color. Yeah, because there, there are people as a result of the way we structure our world, white supremacy, patriarchy, capitalism, that are living in the dystopia now. Yeah, and I think that that it's those voices are more important. Um, would you go, okay, so you, you, you would like to go to space and like be on like the space station or something mm -hmm. like that, but what if there was a chance, like what if people were like going on a, we're going to space and we're never coming back kind of thing? Could I still send radio signals, even if they take years to get back? one of the motivations for exploring is to share that journey with home. And mm -hmm. so if the journey can't be shared, then why? I mean, I would still go or I would want to go. I don't know now to think about it. I don't actually, I don't, I don't know if I thought about this. Yeah. Cause I, I, you know, if we're going to Mars, if we're going to these other places, I think the importance is to share the, the learning. There's this one scene. That's oh, probably my favorite part of the Martian. If you've seen that movie, uh, the character's name escapes me at this point, but it's it's Matt Damon. <laughs> Matt Damon's yeah. playing the character. So Matt Damon's on Mars and he's got like this monologue at one point where he's like, everywhere I go, I'm the first person who's ever been here. And I think the tone of that could be taken either way. But it, one of it's like, yeah, I'm the first. But I, that's not what I read in his voice. It's more of like the sense of humility that it's like, I, like n I'm the first person to see this. And I think there's some... It's not that it, he discovered it, and that's not what he's saying. He's like, I discovered it, because it's, it ultimately already exists to the universe, right? It's more of like, I get to see this thing, and I'm experiencing it, and now I have a responsibility to share this environment, like this feeling, this sensation, this, the humility of this with the rest of the world. Um, that's what I hope exploration does for all of us. I would not go away if I could never come back. <laughs> yeah. I, that is one thing that, like, no, no, thank you. Well, I'd miss you. Yeah, I, I, that's the thing. I'd miss you. If you if you left for space and it was like this is a one-way trip, I, I'm i not saying like, you know, 
your body, your choice. You get to make that decision. But we would have to have some serious conversations first. Yeah, we'd have to record so many episodes before I left. Well, I mean, you couldn't leave (laughs) before we finished season seven. Thanks for asking those questions. Those are that, that that was really cool. While transporting delegates from two feuding worlds who have both applied to join the Federation, the Enterprise unknowingly picks up a mysterious alien energy entity. Bum, this bum, bum. is a weird episode. Yeah, it kind of goes all over the place. Like, like you were pointing out, there's sort of like three storylines simultaneously. Yeah. yeah, I feel like I could say, I like a lot of the episodes in season one are really weird. This one. I think, in some ways, just takes the cake. It's so strange. We're going to structure this episode a little bit differently, but we've got these two storylines. So there's one about these two feuding worlds, the Antikins and the Sele going to a planet called Parliament to negotiate their Federation membership. And that's sort of like the framing story. It's like the reason that the rest of the story happens. And it's also the comic relief. And then Also, the- Picard keeps pronouncing par- Parliament with like an extra syllable. Do you notice that? He, yeah, he's like a Parliament. Parliament. And I had to like, I turned on the closed <laughs> captioning because I was like, wait, is he saying Parliament? I'm like, what? Pla- what is it called? Anyways, <laughs> yeah, no, it's pa- it Parliament. Parliament. It's. Parliament. I, don't, I don't know if that's like a sort of snooty way of saying it. I don't know. It's weird. I don't know. Um, I don't know. but yeah, so that's that's like the framing device. That's like why the rest of the story happens, it's also very much the comic relief. Like, I feel like the Antikins and the Sele are just mostly just played for laughs. It kind of gets dark and weird later, but we'll get into that. It gets very dark. (laughs) It gets Um, really dark. (laughs) Yeah, and then the other storyline is this mysterious entity uh, possessing the crew and the ship's computer, and that's like the main storyline and arguably a much more interesting storyline. The Antikins and the Sele arrive on the Enterprise, the Sele come in first, and they're like reptilian snake people. Um, and they're no, like... they come second. The Antikins are already there. Oh, right, right, right. We see we see them first, is what I should yeah. say, because we see them beam onto the Enterprise, and, and the Antikins are already there. And they're like, the Antikins smell, we don't want to be near them. Uh, and so, like, all, like, right away, we're given this idea that there's a lot of tension between these two worlds, which is interesting. I hadn't really... I think it's the only time they really say that within the Federation or, you know, people that are trying to join the Federation, there might be tension between those worlds. So it's it's kind of this interesting concept. There's not only tension, there's like open hostility. Yeah, hatred. They're like, we don't even like how they smell. Yeah. And and they're just, <laughs> and, and there's no even like attempt to keep it civil in front of this like Starfleet ship, this Federation ship that's taking you. <laughs> to, to this, on this, this place. Yeah, and and the the whole point of them going to Parliament is to work out their differences, and they're to me this is like how children, young children, behave. They smell. Yeah. So clearly that like the tensions established, and so they they head off to Parliament, and as they're heading there, they find this purple swirling energy cloud. They make like a a sensor pass on it. Or sensor, as Picard says. Sensor, um, yeah. <laughs> sensor, and and then they're like, okay, we'll just take this pass, and then and then they they go to they carry on to Parliament. But as that's happening, uh, LaForge and Worf are working on these sensor assemblies, and I think it's kind of cool. Like, I mean, obviously they just needed a reason to have Worf and Jordy together, but. Worf says that the reason he's there is that Picard wants all of his junior officers to learn everything. As they make the pass, uh, this like blue energy comes out of the wall and zaps Worf, 
knocking him to the ground. And Jordy, we learn a little bit later that he's able to see a glow uh, around him. Worf, Jordy calls for sickbay to come and get him. There's a medical emergency in the yeah, because he's like room. Jordy. Yeah, because and Worf's like freaking out. Yeah, yeah. He like knocks like the when the doctor comes to get him, he like knocks Crusher off of him, and eventually she's able to sedate him, and they get him to sickbay. LaForge is able to restrain Worf, and I was like, no way. Oh, yeah, no. Riker hangs out with the Anticans. They have all these animals they wanted to bring aboard to, like, eat and stuff, because that's that's what they eat. And Riker's like, we no longer enslave animals for consumption, which, you know, is kind of judgmental of their society. But understanding that in the future, we don't, apparently we don't have farms and stuff anymore. We just, yeah. like, replicate, we replicate meat. We're all, like... Sort of vegetarian adjacent, I guess, because we still we still eat meat, but we just replicate it from. It's, and we're actually doing that now, like printing meat. It's not. Is the meat that they eat on Star Trek, like from replicators, is that based on real meat, or is it made out of something else? Like, there's a couple episodes where they actually have like a turkey on the table, yeah, and they mention that it, it's like a turkey. It, is it like made out of a turkey, or is it made out of like? I, don't I know. think it's replicated protein molecules. But yeah. it's interesting, though, because then like, people might be eating, like, quote-unquote turkey their whole lives and have never actually eaten a turkey. Yeah. Although I think yeah. they get rid of that later because O'Brien says in one episode way, way, way later from now that, that he actually, like, cooks meat. But, yeah. So it might yeah, be one of those yeah. things that we just, like, forget. Yeah. But, but it's – so, I mean, Riker says that they don't enslave animals anymore. But he also – like, the reason that they're having this conversation is that Yar is, like, they're asking us to – like keep these live animals on board and Riker's like okay that's what we'll do so he's a little bit judgy about it in his language of enslaving animals but he's not stopping them from from eating their way and I also felt like the Anticans were like pretty judgy of him when he's like we no longer enslave animals and they're like ugh what's wrong with you yeah barbarians <laughs> yeah like, yeah he calls them like, barbarians we're, we're the barbarians for not eating animals it was interesting they're trying to point out these kind of cultural differences that I guess they would struggle with. It would it would have been nice if they kind of dug into that a little bit more. Like there's a point we, we kind of skipped over a bit earlier, like on the bridge, Picard and Riker are talking about like how these two groups are arguing with each other. And he says, even strangely enough, economic systems, as if that's like a weird thing for people to argue about, probably because in the future, we've just gotten our like economy sorted out, I suppose. But well, we don't have money. So we don't have money in the future as far as we know in Star Trek. So yeah, um, but yeah, it would have been it would have been kind of interesting if they kind of probed that a little bit more. But it it doesn't really go much deeper than that. Crusher examines Worf because he's been knocked out by this this e- energy, and she's wearing this like really cool, like round cap with an eyepiece that I don't think we ever see again. It's like VR for Worf's head. Yeah, and as she's doing that, the blue energy transfers to her right before Troy comes in and notices that Worf is like seems normal. She can, as far as she can sense. And Crusher just acts so weird. You don't need to be an empath to know that there's something up with her. Yeah. So we find out <laughs> we find out later why Troy doesn't pick up on this. And I I mean we can get into it later, but I'm gonna say it makes sense that humans always have a duality in their heads. Like it was kind of explaining away, but I was like, okay, fine. Whatever. Yeah. Um but so she goes to her quarters, and she's just acting so strange. It's weird that Wesley doesn't notice how weird she's acting, but she's 
really interested in his schoolwork on dilithium crystals and warp theory. And she's like, oh, how would this affect navigation? Oh, I must go to the bridge. Yes, yes, the bridge. Wesley's just like, okay, okay, mom. And still rocking the orange cream school sweater. Of course. Crusher goes to the bridge in like a daze and tells Picard that Worf is fine. He had a temporary mental aberration. Picard requires a, a more thorough explanation than that. And she's like, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll check on the ship's library, which I guess is on the bridge. So, but she wants to be on the bridge because she wants to do something else. She wants to look at helm control. Data notices. He's like, why are you, you can use like the science terminal instead, or like, why are you doing this? He's he's sort of innocent about it. He's like, oh, does this have something to do with helping Worf? No, he's just curious because that's how, that's how Data rolls. Then the blue energy comes out of her, comes out of Crusher and goes into the ship's computers and Crusher is left with no memory of why she's on the bridge, but weirdly doesn't tell anyone that. Yeah, it was such a strange thing. It was just, you know, especially for like as the chief medical officer, she wouldn't be like, hey, I actually have no memory of how I got here. Um, you think you might want to tell somebody that. And it would be helpful. It would be helpful because Worf also had no memory of why he was in sickbay. Yep. And then computer malfunctions start coming in from all over the ship. And they have Mr. Singh. And Mr. Singh explains that while all the malfunctions have been repaired, that seems like they're all with systems that don't communicate with each other. So like something basically they're trying to imply that is like moving from system to system. Picard's like not satisfied with their answer. Yeah, he's like, that is unsatisfactory. But like, I feel like they're not satisfied with their answer either. No, because they like can't explain it, right? So like something's going on. Then we cut back to the Sele and Antikin storyline. Some of the Antican delegates were found outside the Sele's quarters, and they are their quarters are nowhere near each other because the Sele complained about the Antican smell. And the Antican says that these weapons are tools for killing their food, but Riker and Yar are like, well, we're going to take them from you. Basically like a mini lightsaber. Yeah. It's like he's trying to say, like, everyone's like, you're carrying a lightsaber, and he's like, no, nah, it's just a fork. <laughs> Dude, like you you could kill someone with this. They're so like, they're so they're such jerks about it. So war power fails. They can't tell Parliament because their subspace radio is out. And finally, they're like, okay, something's going on. And they're like, hey, right, Grand Data figure maybe there's like a saboteur on board. This would lead to discussion where they're like, ah, uh, you know, what about old school private investigation is really cool. And Picard has sort of this moment of nostalgia about like Sherlock Holmes. And that gives Data an idea. He's like, maybe I'll go check out Sherlock Holmes. This is the beginning of Data's love affair with Sherlock Holmes. We will, we, this will come back to us. Yeah, and it, it almost kills everybody. But later, yeah. for another episode. <laughs> it does. I also want to say one thing about the idea that there's a saboteur on board. They think maybe the Ferengi paid off one of the delegates. They are very quick to say that it's, it must be the delegates. They're like, there's no way it was anyone on the crew. But like, how many people are on this crew? Really, you can vouch for each and every one of them? Like, Ruthie, they wear the uniform. I, they wear the uniform. This is the kind of thinking that gets people killed. I think it's them also trying to really emphasize that everyone who's part of Starfleet and the Federation are like, they're good. They're good people. You know, they they trust the entire crew. They don't have to worry about it. It has to be something from outside. Like the ship also has like tons of civilians. It's really striking to me that they go immediately to this must be one of the delegates. There's just no other way. It can't be someone 
It can't be an inside job. And later on in the series, they're a little more willing to explore that option. Mm-hmm. But in here, it's, I think, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think they, it is for them to say, like, you know, people in Starfleet are good. But in my interpretation of it now, I think that that's kind of sloppy storytelling and not just sloppy, but actually like really problematic because this idea that like, well, no, none of my people would ever do this. So it must be the outsider. That's the kind of thinking that leads to like xenophobia and discrimination. Sure, and, sure. Yeah. Although given the propensity of the Anticans to want to eat everything, I'd be afraid of them too. But do they want to eat everything or do they just want to eat the celly? Yeah, that's probably fair. Yeah. Yeah, Maybe they just said really poor representatives of their society. Yeah, these, these are the best diplomats you got. Yeah, I'd be like, really? Are they? So in engineering, Wesley figures out something. He's basically like, here's a way that you can isolate a problem between the different systems because uh, Wesley's a genius. And yep. Singh's cool with that. He's like, hey, good work. Like, I can I can follow up on things from here, but then tells him like, okay, you got to get back to class. And so Wesley is heads off but first he makes a stop at home and that's when he bumps into his mom they have this conversation about his studies and stuff and she's like i have no memory of this conversation about like dilithium crystals or warp drive or anything yeah she is like zero zero memory of it happening and then sing like is doing his whatever it was that wesley suggested and he gets zapped by the blue light and i think he's the first crew member that we see die Earlier, I was watching the episode, and when he's in the the observation room, and he's talking about like engineering, and I'm like, "Why don't we ever see this character again?" Oh, that's why, <laughs> that's why. he's dead. Yeah, and you know, it's it bugs me that like the first crew member we see die is a person of color. He's the first person with a, with a non English accent as well. Yeah, I was thinking about that too. I was like, I was like, oh, okay, that's. This I was like, kill the diversity. We won't make them important enough characters that we have to keep them alive. The warp engines miraculously repair themselves. Wesley's like, no, there's no way that Singh did this. I saw what he was working on. It wouldn't have fixed them like this. There are a few like back and forths where people are just like, well, who cares about the why? We're just going to, we, we have to go to Parliament. So let's go. They didn't even seem to care that much that Singh was dead. No. They're just like, did he fix it? It was so inconvenient that he died before this thing got repaired. Yeah. Oh, but it's okay. Warp is fixed. Let's go. Yar interrogates the Antikins. Presumably, she also interrogates the Sele, but we don't see that. The Antikins have their alibis that they were busy eating a large and interesting animal. Data, Data starts his Sherlock Holmes impression, and he says that, this is quotes Spock. Well, he quotes Sherlock Holmes, but he's also quoting Spock. Hang on, let me... Yeah, because Spock uses that quote as well, but I think it's also, it's, um, it is originally a Sherlock Holmes quote, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. Spock says it a little differently, but basically the idea is when you eliminate the impossible, I think this is how Spock says it, when you eliminate the impossible, whatever is left, no matter how improbable, must be the truth. His, I, it's a bit of a logical leap. Yeah, especially because, as you noted earlier, like they haven't really ruled out every other possibility. But they're like, no. we got to get move the plot along and we have to separate these two subplots from each other even more. Yeah. So let's do that. <laughs> but basically, basically, he's like the delegates are too involved in chasing each other to have sabotaged the ship or to have killed Mr. Singh. Like yep. they're too busy. Basically, he, he tells the audience that they're not important to the main story. Yeah, don't pay any more attention to them. They're just trying to eat yeah. each other. You're like, okay. Yeah. I think it's also the first time that we get any attention paid to Livingston, which is Picard's fish. Is his name Livingston? 
His name is Livingston. Yes, he's, oh, he is. That. He's a lionfish. You, you see Data turn around and actually tap on the glass at one point. And I was like, oh, it's Livingston. I don't yeah. think you see him in the scene, but that's, 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 he's there. Yeah. Yeah. I don't actually know off the top of my head why I know his name is Livingston because I don't think they ever mentioned it in the episode, but I think it's like written down somewhere. Anyways, side story. Um, Troy hypnotizes Crusher and Worf because they both they're both experiencing memory loss and what comes up is that they could feel someone else in their minds. And so we get this explanation that Troy didn't think anything of that before. She was able to sense another presence in their minds, but Betazoids sense duality in everyone. Like she talks about, like when you're sort of trying to figure out even like, I don't know, what you want to have for lunch. Who are you talking to when you're weighing your decisions? There's like a duality in people's minds, which I feel like that makes sense to me. And I think the show sometimes, especially early on, but but kind of throughout the whole series, they had to kind of work in loops a little bit to make it so that Troy wouldn't pick up on something. Yeah, and they, they find, yeah, sometimes they find clever ways to do that. Sometimes she's just not in the episode because yeah. they have to like have some kind of mystery. Yeah, I'd imagine that like when you're writing, if you're writing um, an exploration based or a show where there's like discovery and mystery, having a character that can read emotions and thoughts would actually be really complicated to write around. Unfortunately, I think sometimes they, like you said, either the loops, they underwrite what she's doing or they just get rid of her rather than trying to like play it into to the story uh, yeah. really well. Yeah. Yeah. Helm, helm control stops working again, but then Picard checks it out and gets zapped by the the blue light. And it's sort of implied that Jordy can see that that has happened. But Picard's like, oh, no, everything's fine. And yeah, he's definitely acting weirdly, though. He's Yeah, he's acting super weird. And LaForge looks back at helm control and it is fine. And then Picard's like, OK, now let's go back to the energy cloud. But he won't tell them why. Yeah, so yeah, we're just a reverse course, and everyone's like, oh, all right. And he's like, we're going to discover things there. There are discoveries that await. Yeah, but everyone knows that there's so- something weird is going something on. Something weird's up. Troy, the senior officers kind of have a little a little private, private meeting without Picard. It's not enough to relieve him of duty, but Troy f- is pretty sure he's going to do something that will put the ship in danger. Riker and Crusher both talk about ways that they can relieve him of duty. Riker... Like, they, they both can, but he needs to show that he's putting the ship in danger and he's not doing that yet. So eventually they just approach him and they're like, we want you to go to sick bay. But he turns it back on them. He's like, you go to sick bay. Yeah. And it's really like, it's, he's kind of, he's kind of gaslighting them, right? Like, he's kind of being like, how do you know I'm the one acting weird? I think you're acting weird. But he's doing it very ineffectively. Pretty clear that something's up with him. He's trying to be manipulative, but he's not doing a good job. Cut to the, this an- angry Antikin, who is being followed by Colmini again. This is his second appearance. Is he yet? Is he in the credits as O'Brien yet? I don't know. But, random security but he's, officer. He's there. He's, he's really upset that the ship has changed course. He's passing by the, the Sully's quarters and they're like, no, like, go leave go back to your stop yeah he's like really he's like return to your quarters he's like you guys didn't want to be you wanted to be separated like why do you keep ending up with each other yeah it's a pretty funny scene and then Riker gets caught in like a celly trap yeah it was like the glowing glowing neck loop thing it's a glow stick stick attached to a a large pole yeah it goes around his neck and they're like oh sorry wrong species wrong species (laughs) yeah 
Yeah. So, I mean, it's clear that, yes, these these two groups of people are very much too busy chasing each other to be sabotaging the ship. Yeah, I don't understand how they figure they're going to get into the Federation at this point. Crusher finally confronts Picard, and he admits that he's not just Picard. And I've got, there's actually some interesting quotes here um, where he says, like, we, we are Picard and more. And she's like, well, it's the more that frightens me. And then he says, like, soon we'll both be home. Like, up until this point, like, you don't really know what the motivations of the entity are. Like, is it when it starts with war, if it's just kind of, like, angry and, like, throwing people around? Um, when it's, like, when it gets to sing, it just, like, kind of kills them. At first, I was like, I wonder if it's trying to connect with, like, the underlying emotions of each of the characters. Like, with Worf, he's like, I got angry. And then with Picard, it's like, I'm I'm looking for like belonging and connection because it's implied in the past that he was like lonely like you know like in in encounter in farpoint i think in the second half uh crusher and wesley have this conversation about like how great explorers are lonely people um so i was like maybe this is like the entity is trying to connect into this 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 sort of realm of picard's character that he's actually like underneath is looking for a place to feel like he belongs and maybe since the entity wants to get back home it can play on that with him well and get back to where they want to go and maybe that's why the episode's called the lonely among us but they don't really go into that at all in this part and so i was like i wish that conversation was fleshed out a bit more yeah they don't go into it i actually had a different interpretation of what this entity is connecting to with picard oh i thought that it was connecting more with more with picard's desire to explore that Picard this idea of like the the whole mandate of Starfleet right to seek out new life new civilizations to boldly go where no one has gone before that it's it's with that so this idea that and we'll I mean we're we're getting there but we might as well say it so Picard tells everyone that he now wants to meld permanently with this entity he's sort of speaking he's speaking as the entity but he's saying that that the real Picard agrees with him that this is what they want to do. They want to meld together and become pure energy and just explore the universe together. And there's, it's a, it's to me, it's a weird writing of Picard. I think that probably they planned to take him as a character in a direction that, that he was going to be this like really cerebral man. Um, And I'm saying man because like, like he, this, it's just, it connects to me to this idea that I find really infuriating that like true greatness is having a great mind, right? True greatness is being, uh, is not, not being concerned with mundane worldly details, but it's, it's rising above all of that, right? Yeah. And so I think yeah. that they, they maybe originally saw Picard as, a person who would have believed that later on he becomes a much warmer person who really values connections between people but right now he they hadn't really he he wasn't really that character yet and i think maybe this was the direction they had planned to take him in i hadn't thought of it like that but you're right i mean they do talk later about how if he was like energy he could kind of travel wherever you wanted to or whatever uh in that case i'm like well why like so the confusing part for me there is like why do you have to go back to the cloud then just be yourself into space anywhere 
you know, like yeah, why why are they why are they heading back here? Because there's this whole idea that he has to like get back and return, and so I'm I'm probably I'm biased in how I'm interpreting this, just what I know about Picard's character in the future. But like I thought there was they were trying to get into this idea of of like loneliness, also because it's you know it was the title of the episode. Um, so I thought like oh maybe they're trying to play in this idea that like you know Picard's this lonely character, and like now he's found this entity that kind of relates to him. And I I think you're you're also I, I really I find that concept interesting that you're talking about in terms of like the detachment, like having to be a brain because yeah. in a lot of writing, when we write about like advanced civilizations or we conceptualize what encounters with an advanced alien race might be like, it's always about the power of their mind. So they're either like computer beings or they've like uploaded their consciousness to a computer. They've, they've, they've disconnected from their physical self, which is what's happening in this episode. But there was this interesting debate that I heard once with um, uh, Andrewian, who uh, was a co-producer on Cosmos with Carl Sagan um, and was married to Carl Sagan. And uh, she was asked once about like what we thought would happen if some super advanced civilization came to meet us. Well, she said, well, if they're so much more technologically advanced than us, why can't they also be like more morally and ethically advanced than we are? Like, why do we assume that if they show up here, they have to conquer us? Like in our own history, I think that's what we're, we're interpreting. And yeah. maybe that is what you said earlier might be from like a, a white perspective. And I'd say patriarchal perspective as well, that we're just afraid that someone's going to do to us what we have done to other peoples in the world, you know, or to each other in the world. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's also, and it's a very, it's a very white, probably originally European, like it's a, I'd say like settler or like colonizing perspective that this idea of empathy and caring about human connection is less advanced than yep. science as like a cold, hard, objective thing. And I mean, I'm saying that sarcastically because science is not objective science is something that is created by humans who all have their own biases and they need to recognize those biases and you know science can be racist and science can be homophobic and science mm, can yes, yeah. science is it can't science is not like this objective truth um but but there is this idea that yeah human connection or be, that being more advanced is about the yeah the brain yeah i think you're right yeah and it's this sort of this idea that like um that then therefore emotional or empathetic considerations of dialogue discussion around certain social issues are not logical like we have to look at it this is not logic i see that a lot online like when people are arguing with each other about things they're like yeah. well you're being you're being emotional you're being like this is just like it's just you're not being logical and i was like well how is empathy not a logical part of interacting with other humans yeah that doesn't make any sense it's true and it came up i feel like it came up we talked about this a bit in maybe the first episode this idea that like you need to be totally dispassionate you can't be if you're emotional that uh that undermines your point and what that means is that, like, so, you know, if, if you have any emotional connection to a topic, then you can't be an expert on that topic because you are clouded by your emotions. And so then what that means is that the people who are, who think they aren't affected because they have privilege 
are the are the ones we think of as experts and the people who are like in instances of oppression the people who are being oppressed are too too close they they get too emotional about it so i feel like like they were trying to write picard as this as that kind of character as someone who's totally dispassionate who right. doesn't care about the emotions even in like like in the first episode where he says to riker i'm not good with kids i need you to make me come off as congenial yeah because i'm not going to do any work on that you have to make it happen yeah like he's just not he's he's just He's only interested in the logic. He's only interested in the objective exploration. And I'm so glad that that's not where the character ended up going because I really don't think that would have been a pleasant show to watch. No, and and unfortunately, like whatever ramifications of I'm kind of skipping ahead a wee bit. Yeah, that's okay. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, the, the ramifications as well as what this episode might mean for the character's development are are undone. Because at the end of the episode, they're like, oh, well, this backup copy of Picard we have in the transporter doesn't have the memory of the experiences that he has from the cloud. And you're like, oh, okay. So yeah. he just he doesn't remember being an energy being anyway. So I guess we just end the episode now. So it's like, whereas like this could have been a really interesting experience for Picard. I know like back in... In those days, episodes tended not to really carry over, like, the consequences of one to the next. It's just the way that they were yeah. written. And also, I was like, does everyone just have a backup of themselves in the transporter then? Can we just make, like, endless copies of each other? No, no, I think that it's not, it's, they're always, you always have the last pattern. The last pattern, yeah. So he beamed out, and he had that, so it's that pattern. It's the pattern that beamed out. Yeah, but is it's still there. They found him in the energy cloud, though. So it was like, but is that, wasn't that his consciousness? I didn't understand that last part. I was like, if they're getting him from the cloud back, how come he doesn't remember being in the cloud? No, like, it makes no sense. It's, yeah. I was like, it's like, they tried to describe it as if like the autosave was from five minutes ago on his, on his mind or whatever. Yeah. Like, no, but, he just doesn't remember that. But then why, why, yeah, that's, that's weird. Cause I'm like, why would they even need to get him from there? Yeah. Yeah. Like, why couldn't they just make a new book? Anyway, it's, it's not clear. Transporter technology I mean, we're not, we haven't developed that yet. The, the original series, my understanding was that they invented the transporter so you didn't have these sequences where you had to fly back and forth in places with a shuttlecraft because they were expensive to, yeah, to yeah, film. Yeah, they had the transporter so that you didn't have to film the ship landing. Or the yeah, ship landing. but honestly, I think the transporter is the most, like, one of the most plot-breaking devices in Star Trek. <laughs> we we kind of skipped over this, but we'll just <laughs> recap a little bit about what happens. So Picard goes to the transporter room and beams himself into the energy cloud, but without his body. Yep. So energy only. So the transporter goes, you go from matter to energy, back to matter, and he goes from matter to energy, and just stays as energy. The crew is like, what the heck? <laughs> like, what are we supposed to do? Our captain just beamed himself into a cloud. Yeah, they're like, should we just stick around? Stay. You know, should we stay? Go, should we go? go? To Parliament? Like, do we just keep going? So, so. and I think like uh, LaForge at one point is like, so he's just floating out there. Like, <laughs> they, and, they seem to recognize how ridiculous it is. Yeah, and then Riker's like, well, I get to be in command now, so let's get out of here. Let's head <laughs> off to Parliament because I get to keep the captain's job. Riker's always after the big chair. I mean, it's been an hour. They've been looking for an hour. And, you know, once you look for something for an hour, if you can't find it, it's lost forever. That's just It is. Yeah, especially in space. Oh, my God. That's it. It's gone. 
But then Troy senses Picard's consciousness and is like, yeah. oh, he's out there and he's by himself. He's alone. And she's basically like, no, Riker, we're not going to Parliament. I can feel him. We have to help him. And that's when Riker's like, okay, let's move. Let's move the ship into the cloud. I guess I'm not getting promoted today. We'll try to pick Picard up from the cloud. And he comes back in and like basically rearranges the Elkar's <laughs> screens to show this P. Riker asks P for Picard? As if it's like a question? I'm like, no, what? P for what pizza? Else? Like, what do you think it is? <laughs> Peanuts? He's like, is that is that a message? Data, become Sherlock Holmes again. Let's yeah, figure yeah, out what we, this is. We need to, this is a clue, I'm sure. Is, this a, is it a clue? <laughs> it's like looking at it with a magnified glass. Data's like, okay, well, Picard's physical pattern is still going to be in the transporter room that he beamed out of. So they run to the transporter room and they're like, let's hope he remembers to go to that transporter room and then we can somehow rematerialize him but without his current consciousness only with his past consciousness as we've discussed it makes no sense it doesn't make sense but whatever we get him back yeah get him back he doesn't remember being in the cloud he remembers that he planned to go to the cloud i felt like he should have been a little embarrassed there you know when he maybe he was maybe that's why he starts like being like i'm just gonna go to sick bay or it's more that he doesn't want to deal with what's going on but yeah it didn't really show much humility as he's about to go to sick bay, Yar enters the transporter room and she, she's, she's like... She's really upset. She's so upset because one of the Sele are missing and the Antikins have asked the ship's cook, who I don't think we ever hear of again, but the Antikins have asked the ship's cook to cook a very large reptilian creature. Yeah. So basically they ate him and... Yeah. The episode just plays it off as if it's just like comic relief. It's the end of the episode. In fact, when she's trying to tell them that a member of the delegation may have died, Riker's like, please show some respect for the captain. He just came back from an energy cloud. <laughs> you know? He's and you're like, really oh, okay. embarrassed and needs yeah. some time alone. He needs some time alone. Like, could you? Yeah. And he, she's like, sorry, sir. Hello. Thanks. Sorry, I'm glad bye, you're back. Yeah. Anyway, this guy's dead. This guy's dead. And they're just like, dun, 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 dun. It's like the funny end music. And well, it's it's not just on that. It's on Picard being like, you know what, Riker? I have to go to sick bay. You handle this. Yeah. And then Riker's like, oh, maybe I don't want this job after all. Wah, wah. Uh, wah, wah. Yeah. So it was kind of a weird tone at the end. Two races were trying to like enter the Federation. They just kind of make light of the whole thing. When we were going through the notes, when you prepared the notes for this episode, you had actually separated out the, the different plots. So there was the main plot, which seems to be centered around Picard and the energy entity, and then the, the delegates with uh, the Sela and the Antikins, and then kind of this, this subplot again with, with, with Data and Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. But I, I, wish, I wish they'd almost separated them all out, because the episode, like if the Antikin Sela thing had not been just comic relief, but it actually been like a serious episode about to what the, the difficulties are in trying to join the Federation and what it's like to, uh, you know, to, to maybe have to change some of your cultural practices in order to to fit with Federation Charter of Rights and mandates. Uh, what happens if you're like at war with another race that also wants to join the yeah. Federation? Like how, like all that would have been really interesting to dig into. And it was unfortunate that they didn't really do that. And likewise, I think there's some other stuff that could have expanded on with um, like we were talking about earlier with the energy entity. And so I, I almost wish that these were two separate episodes. Yeah, I feel like they had these two ideas that had potential and ended up watering them both down pretty heavily. Yeah. Like my the part of the episode that I like the most is seeing Data be Sherlock Holmes. Oh, yeah. And I mean, they could have also had an episode about that. I, we will get episodes about that in the future. No worries there. <laughs> but 
when the writers looked back on this episode, they probably agreed with you because it was the only part of this that ended up carrying forward to any other episode. <laughs> we never we never meet the Antikins or the Sele again. Also, nope. I think I mean, I might this might be inaccurate, but I'm pretty sure that at least after season one, maybe after this episode, the other like aliens that we meet have much less elaborate faces. Yeah, they're really elaborate costumes. Yeah, you can, it, it, to the point where you actually like their their mouths don't move properly when they talk. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> it's all rubber faced. Yeah, like the Antikins to me look like they belong in the movie Labyrinth, which is a yeah. Jim Henson production, and like they. Yeah, they're and then the the Sele are snakes with arms and legs. They look cool. I want to do like Antican or Sele cosplay. I feel like it might have the effect. Maybe the the costume people or whoever makes these decisions. I don't know how TV works, but maybe they decided that these costumes just made it harder to connect with them as think of them as people. Yeah, I wonder if that's because of the the face the facial movement was so limited like i'm i'm to try to jump to another franchise right now i'm thinking about discovery so you have saru and discovery and like his face is really done up you know like a, a quite a, a elaborate facial prosthetic but is like the mouth is still it moves so quite a bit so you can still like see articulation right. and like it's that kind of thing so I, I wonder if that's what makes a big difference that maybe we don't it's also probably really expensive and time consuming to just make costumes that are that elaborate part of why i have a hard time connecting to these characters is that they're just unbelievable as delegates like they're trying to eat each other while trying to apply for membership to the federation like it's very strange bit of a bit of a weird episode those early ones i can't remember a lot of them by episode title off the top of my head but when i started watching it i'm like oh it's the energy p episode and then i was like i immediately knew what it was i'm like this is one where the p shows up there's that episode lonely among us what's the next one the next episode is justice Justice. Do you remember Justice? Oh, is it the one where um, where Wesley like breaks the Garden of Eden? Yes. It's like the crappy version of Riza. Riza, but you might be executed. So thank you so much for listening to this episode of With the First Link. If you liked what you heard, please consider leaving us a stellar five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast provider of choice. Our cover art was created by Nathan Nunn, and you can find more of his work at nathannunn.ca. Our theme song is An Amazing Adventure by Flame Lion Studio. You can follow us on Instagram at firstlinkpod or send us an email at firstlinkpod at gmail.com to let us know what you thought about this episode of Star Trek. I'm Ruthie. And I'm Matthew. And remember to save a backup of yourself in the transporter. <laughs>